The angel who was speaking to me left. Another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within. I wonder what would your, if you were able to, uh, to build, what would your ideal church building be like? Um, not like this one, I have to, uh, uh, I suspect. Last week we were absolutely sweltering and nearly um, um, dying with the heat. This week we're being blown away, but I think it's getting closer under, under control, is it, Peter? Good. Um, actually, I was thinking this morning, Charles Spurgeon, uh, when he first went to his new church in London, had a problem with it being terribly stuffy. And um, uh, during the week, he took things into his own hands and uh, went along uh, the gallery with the walking stick and uh, smashed every window around the top and told his deacons it was an act of God in order to make sure that people stayed awake. Well, I hope you'll be awake this morning. Let me give you another suggestion, though, of a sort of church architect architecture that um, some people might be tempted by. I have a father-in-law who could tell you what, that, what, what uh, building that was, but I bet none of you could. No, it's the Cathedral at Albi in the south of France. And uh, it actually doubled in the 13th century as a fortress. At that time, uh, there was a heretical group called the Albigensians, or the Cathars, and um, the Pope decided that he must have a, um, um, a crusade against them. He uh, went against the Albigensians, killing thousands of them, expunging the, uh, the local culture completely from the face of the earth. And in order to control these heretics in that area, he... Uh, um, had this cathedral built, which also doubled as fortified protection for the people. Well, although that may be a slightly extreme example, I have to say, I suspect that churches have always been tempted to build buildings that uh, uh, speak of power and of protecting the people within soon as the early church was allowed to build church buildings for a couple of hundred years, they could only meet in homes, which fitted very nicely with the New Testament picture of them being the family of God. As soon as they uh, were allowed officially to build church buildings, they looked around and decided they would model their churches on Roman basilicas. Basilicas were big buildings at the centre of towns where the law and finance of that region was administered. So they set up an alternative power base across the forum, where the, which was the church in this country as well. Churches have always been tempted to uh, either dominate the centre of the town or put themselves on the highest point in the town, for, uh, and preferably both, for a similar reason. Interestingly, non-conformist churches had no opportunity to do that for hundreds of years. They were marginalised and despised. But then in the 19th century, there were new freedoms for, for non-conformist churches. And in uh, Victorian England, we found 
non-conformist churches starting to speak uh, uh, about the right to build churches after the fashion of the established church. A a very um, uh, important example of that in Oxford is the actually Cowley Road Methodist Church, built in 1904, the same year as our church building. But it was built on an altogether grander scale. It looks like a cross between a palace and and a fortress, if you look at it. And it was meant to. They wanted to proclaim that they were as rich and secure as anybody in the land a hundred years ago. I think we can detect exactly that same desire to establish something that protects the people in Israel in Zechariah's day. You see, once they had had that, once these Israelites had lived secure in the land, Jerusalem had been a great capital city. The the temple had been one of the great wonders of the world. It was a walled and secure place. But actually, um, uh, a lifetime ago now for Zechariah, The whole land had been overrun. Israel had been humiliated. The temple had been destroyed. And God's people had been exiled in Babylon. Under uh, under King Cyrus, a few had returned and started to rebuild the temple. But actually, they became demoralized by the forces that were still there opposing them. And they stopped. Last week, we saw, if you were here, that uh, Zechariah's main set of visions that we're continuing to look at this week came, actually, just just a couple of years after Darius had come to power. The first two years of Darius's reign were full of of uprisings and uh, instabilities, and that had been a great encouragement to Israel. Perhaps the dominance of that great Babylonian superpower was crumbling, and Israel once again could raise its head and establish itself as a secure place. Haggai actually uh, prophesied at the same time, the previous book in the Bible, just at that point when when everything was feeling insecure, and got the people back to building the temple of God. Just a few weeks after Haggai finished prophesying, in fact. Darius succeeded uh, finally in crushing all opposition, and the Israelites faced the unwelcome news that they were still helpless pawns under the iron fist of a pagan king. And last week we saw, as Zechariah starts his ministry, God reassures them that he has not deserted deserted them. Return to me and I will return to you, he said. I still offer that promise. Even if Darius is all-powerful, we saw Zechariah's uh, first vision in which, which this angel cries to God about the, the peaceful but oppressive domination. How long will this go on, God? And God assures the Israelites that he is watching. He has his angels out on horseback, just as Darius had his mounted spies out around the world. God's watching. 
and God's going to bless his people. God assures those wavering temple builders then in Zechariah's day, he will bless them, he will be, be, build his house, he will be amongst his people once again. You can, you can feel the excitement of it, can't you? It's the same excitement that we might feel if, if, if God said to us, I will build a building for you that is grander than Cowley Road Methodist Church, grander than St. Mary and St. John Church, grander even now than the great mosque that looms over Cowley Road. I am going to build something great for you. But actually God wants his people to know what sort of building he's going to build. What sort of architect he is. So he gives Zechariah two more visions. The first one is uh, found in uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and following. It's a vision of horns, four horns and four craftsmen. Look at verse 18. I looked, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? Actually, the image of horns was very familiar to them. They, they stood for strength. We don't need to imagine four specific uh, powers when he talks about four horns here. He's uh, almost certainly talking about the four points of the compass. These are all the powers of the world that Zechariah has seen. And a lifetime ago, Zechariah knows already, they had scattered God's people, Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. Israel knew those symbolic horns, and so do we in our world. Powers that are far, far more powerful than God's people seem to be. There's a public inquiry just closed in London this week to decide whether a beautiful thousand foot high building nicknamed the, uh, the Shard of Glass can be built uh, by the Thames. A modern horn of power if ever there was one. And English heritage are opposing it because it, they say it will, it will dwarf St Paul's Cathedral and ruin the historic centrepiece of uh, London and, and even of England they say. Well, I've no idea what the public inquiry will decide, but if it is built, it will merely symbolise something that happened long, long ago in London. God's church has been dwarfed on the horizon of England by overwhelming forces for a lifetime or more. But then along comes uh, four craftsmen, verse 20. The Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise its head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Craftsmen from the wider world had built the original temple. It's difficult to avoid the thought as Zechariah as sees these craftsmen on the horizon, perhaps these craftsmen are going to rebuild the temple. 
The answer is very disappointing. Now, their only role is to throw down the horns. All the craftsmen are coming to do is to perhaps build a slightly better crafted society. But they're not coming to build the temple. That's the key thing. They're not coming to build the temple. That's the way the world works. Perhaps the, uh, the, the powerful horn of Saddam Hussein has been overthrown by the craftsmen uh, uh, Bush and Blair, but they will not build the kingdom of God. The destruction of the Twin Towers, I think, warns us that even the massive, apparently overwhelming, powerful horn of, of modern Western civilization could be brought down, but if it is, we need to be assured that whatever comes into its place, whatever overthrows it, will not build the kingdom of God, will not build God's church. God ordains these great powers and raises up kingdoms and, uh, and dashes them to the ground again, but he does not use them to build God's kingdom. See, these Israelites were sadly misguided if they thought that one day there would be a new world order in which God's kingdom would be built. It never, ever happened to them. They stayed under foreign domination until the birth of the church. And as we saw last week, actually when the church was born, she was warned from the outset she will always live in a world dominated by hostile powers. She will always be strangers. Uh, they will always be strangers and aliens in this world. Now you see, the central point that Zechariah wants to, to, to get across to us, that God wants to get across to us, is found in the next vision. First vision says, don't get excited about building a powerful kingdom. But then the building actually does seem to be about to start in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1. There we see a man with a measuring line. Then I looked up, said Zechariah, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand, and I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Here it is, you see. Here is what these poor, dispirited builders have been waiting for, a vision of rebuilding. This man is starting to, to draw up the architect's plans, not only for a renewed temple, but for a renewed city. This is what God promised back in, the, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, when he mentions the measuring line being stretched over Jerusalem there. But something's wrong. The angel who's been standing by Zechariah, speaking to him, sort of hurries off. Another angel appears and they have a quick, mysterious uh, conflab and then an urgent message is sent out to that measurer. Run, he says. Tell that young man. What is, what's he to tell him? What's wrong? Verse 4. Run, tell that young man. Jerusalem will be a city without walls 
because of the great number of men and livestock in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. That's what is wrong, Israel. Perhaps it is right to rebuild the temple now, but don't think God is going to restore those old days when Jerusalem was secure within its walls. God is going to do far more than that. Jerusalem won't hold the number of people who will be gathered together in God's presence. So don't build a wall about, around it. You will exclude people. And don't think you need to build a wall to protect the city of Jerusalem. No, God himself is going to protect that city as a wall of fire. And that is what has happened again and again down through history. God always gives blessings which, which cannot be contained within institutions. When Jesus uh, walked the earth, he surveyed the dominant religious institution of his day, the temple. And he said within a few decades it will be thrown down, and it was. He looked at the, uh, the, 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 the city, which was the city where God's people were to be gathered, and he said, this city will be destroyed, and it was. But the blessing which he came to bring overflowed far beyond that little city to the whole world, and down through the centuries that has happened again and again and again. The church has tended to build institutional walls around itself to define and contain what God does and probably more significantly still, to feel secure. So God has blessed beyond the walls. One of the, one of the greatest examples of that was... was, was uh, um, and the preaching of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. He had to take to the open air to preach his message because the churches would not allow him access. And the revival that broke out under his leadership changed the face of England in the, in the 18th century. It is a tragedy to me that what happened in the 19th century was that non-conformists, Methodists in particular, set about building great, mighty ramparts and walls. And they died. Magnificent walls actually tend to get built when God's people lose confidence that he's really going to protect them. Jerusalem doesn't need walls, says God. I will protect them as a wall of fire. He's actually reminding the people of a great moment in their history when God did protect them in that way. Israel was delivered from Egypt in the days of the Exodus and they set off into the desert with a furious Pharaoh hard on their heels. And we're told in Exodus 13 that uh, uh, God didn't lead them by the conventional route. Because if he had done so, they would have had to have fought conventional battles, and they were far too weak to do that. 
So God took them by a roundabout route, in fact by a route that seemed to be suicidal, that surrendered any sort of conventional protection they may have had, and he left them in the end cornered with their backs against the Red Sea. And then what did God do? He actually became a wall of fire and a wall of cloud between God's people and the Egyptians. And then he parted the Red Sea and they walked through to freedom. That's how I want you to live, says God. You may appear in the world's eyes to be foolish. It may, in fact, seem to be the obvious thing to institutionalize what God is doing and make it feel secure. But that actually will kill you. Because it will limit the blessing that I want to give, which overflows the walls, always. And it will make you lose confidence in the only protection that is real. Me. I, I want to tell you, at, th at this moment in history, the more I read my Bible, the more I, I see what is going on in, in the world, the more I am convinced that we, God's people, need to understand that and see that. If, we are, if as a church we are going to be used by God, we must realize that, that all the things that conventionally keep a church secure are actually useless he protects us with a wall of fire. No brick or, or stone walls will do that. And he himself, says Zechariah, is our glory within. No glory around us will do that. As Howard Snyder said in his book, um, uh, uh, New Wineskins, a generation ago, to build a magnificent building around God's church is like wrapping a diamond in silver foil. You know, for us, at one level, our move out of, uh, out of the church building has been uh, just an administrative decision. But at another level, it has been powerfully symbolic, I think. I know there has been pain associated with that move for, for, for some of us. And perhaps there have been losses associated with it. But you see, if there was any glory about our life that was only associated with meeting in that building, it was actually a false glory. If there was any security that we felt about meeting in that building, it was actually a false security. Because the only security God's church has or needs is his protecting power. The massive, moribund churches uh, standing on street corners in our city proclaim that to us. Indeed, as I was uh, musing on this, I began to wonder whether it was actually the unprepossessing nature of our church building which saved it. It may refer to Woodstock Road as well. 
Because you see, our church has never been uh, infected by people who were impressed by vainglorious shows on the outside. Uh, not many people here now will, will know that actually um, um, Maudlin Road Church was on the point of death in the 1940s. And uh, it was Brian's, uh, Hennegulf's father, Gerald, who was used by God to, to, to revive that church. Gerald left a much more fashionable church to come to Little Maudlin Road as, uh, as, as lay superintendent. And he gathered around himself a group of people who were not interested in false glory or false security. Um, Brian, I don't know whether you remember reading to me some extracts from your dad's diary. I remember it very vividly. And again and again, Gerald was saying in the 1940s how weak he felt and yet how overwhelmed by the glorious sufficiency of the God that he was serving. And Maudlin Road was saved by that. And perhaps other churches that filled themselves with people who were impressed by bricks and mortars died. And once we know that, once we live that, actually the building become relatively in incidental. Zechariah was very pleased that the temple was built. That wasn't his main point. Actually, a generation later, Nehemiah even rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But neither the temple nor the city walls secured blessing for Israel. Only Jesus did. And that lesson that is important to, to us corporately as God's people as well is vitally important to us as individuals. You and I will not be blessed by building a, a secure set of walls of conventional security around ourselves. You know, we invest so much of our energy, don't we, in making sure we have a good job, a healthy bank balance, a nice home, people who massage our egos and make us feel good. And within that false security, we actually lose any vital relationship with God until it's actually death that tears all of those things away from us and leaves us in permanent exile in hell. It happens, you know. Let Jesus Christ be your protection. Step out of those securities that, that, that you gather around yourself and follow him wherever he leads you. His presence in your life can be your glory. His presence in your life can be your security. His presence in your life can give you blessing. That all those other things never ever could. They can be yours. If we invest all our hope in Jesus Christ. That's what Zechariah wants to say. Jerusalem, God's people, will be, must be, a city without walls, 
And then there are three responses that he calls the people uh, to make in verses 6 to 13. Three personal responses that I want to uh, just show you briefly. The first response, he says, is flee. Verse 6. Come, come, or, or, or up with you, up with you. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape, you who live in the daughter of Babylon. All of Zechariah's language is, is geographical because he's speaking in the context where, where Israel had been scattered in exile in what he calls here the land of the north. But from a Christian perspective, reading this as Christians, we know that any scattering that happens is not geographical, it is spiritual. We are scattered and exiled from God in this world. And as we live our lives without God, we live in what Zechariah calls the daughter of Babylon. And we can escape, he says. We can flee. In fact, today we can escape without even moving from our seats. Actually remarkable to see what the New Testament tells us to flee. The New Testament says, flee divisiveness amongst God's people. It adds as well that the reason for that is that the divisive, those who destroy God's temple, the church, will be destroyed themselves. Flee that, he says. Flee sexual immorality, he says, adding uh, that that is because sexual immorality uniquely corrupts us. Flee idolatry, he says, because putting anything up as a God against the real God draws us away from God to our destruction. Flee the evil desires of youth, says Paul to Timothy. Flee false doctrines, quarrelling, the love of money. Flee from all of this, he says, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Run away, he says, from those powerful forces that would seek to dominate your life, that would seek to destroy you. I see so many people whose souls are twisted or eroded or destroyed and killed by the forces that the New Testament portrays to us are the, the, the oppressive forces of today. So I want to ask you, will you flee those things? Will you run away? from what would destroy your soul and flee to Christ. Then Zechariah says, rejoice, verse 10. 
Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you. Since Zechariah wrote, wrote those words, of course, God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who walked this earth, who died for our sins on the cross, who secured our forgiveness. He has come in the person of the Holy Spirit, who now indwells all believers, changing their hearts, drawing them to the living, living God. Those who really see what, what the presence of God in and amongst his, his people is like cannot help but shout and rejoice. Because we're now set free from, from guilt and forgiven by Christ. We now have access to the real living God. And more than that, we are invited to shout and rejoice because actually that, that first arrival of Jesus only anticipates a second arrival of Jesus. When Jesus that time will come in power, not in weakness. When Jesus that time will come to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus will come to create a new heaven and the new earth and redeem his whole creation and people it with his people. And God himself will be there in the midst. And there will be no more tears or crying or mourning or death. Because God himself will have wiped away every tear. Shout and rejoice at that, says Zechariah. I've seen it from a distance, he says, and I feel like shouting. We've seen the reality and can look forward with greater clarity to the final fulfillment of it. Rejoice in that, says Zechariah. It is the greatest news that could ever come in the world. And then Zechariah says, be still. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. I've told you about the overwhelming blessing that I will give you in this world, he says. I have told you about the absolute security that I offer you in this world, he says. I've roused myself, says God. So be still. Why run around after all the things you run around after? Why chase money or relationships or security or a nice home or a good job or prestige or whatever? Why? Just be still. Because I offer you all there is to offer in this world. And I have roused myself, says God. I will do it in your life. Let's bow in stillness.
Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I am the Lord who comforts thee. I am the Lord who comforts thee. I am the Lord who would comfort thee. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust in Thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. We say together, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.